A minister's absence is a godsend. No silly questions, no bright ideas, no fussing about the papers. He can do the job properly for once. So said Sir Humphrey Appleby, without doubt the best-known cabinet secretary this country has ever produced. OK, so he's a fictional character, but unless you've actually served in the upper echelons of the British government yourself, whatever image you may have of the all-powerful figure of cabinet secretary was probably framed by Yes Minister. As Cabinet Secretary, Sir Humphrey is the most senior civil servant in the land, the Prime Minister's impartial right-hand man. He glides through the corridors of power, rarely breaking a sweat, pulling the strings of government as surely as he stymies the best intentions of his supposed boss, the PM. His eloquence is matched only by his obfuscation, his knowledge of how Whitehall functions matched only by his ability to prevent it from doing so whenever he sees fit. Viewers are left in little doubt as to who is really in charge of the nation. Well, of course, that's the only way the country works. Concentrate all the power at number 10, then send the PM away. To the EC summits, NATO summits, Commonwealth summits, anywhere. Then the cabinet secretary can get on with running the country properly. (laughs) Now, of course, that's just a sitcom from the 1980s. The real-life Whitehall doesn't operate like that. Does it? I've always had a bit of a problem with Sir Humphrey because it is a caricature. This is Dr Catherine Haddon, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government and a genuine expert on how Whitehall actually works. Some of it is the slightly conniving attitude that he's got. You know, he knows best. The ministers, the prime minister don't really know what they're doing. He's the one that is the power behind the throne. And it's all a sort of game to try and make sure that his take on the world is the one that comes to the fore. So that is a bit unfair on civil servants who are all, by and large, motivated by public service. Yeah, but as with all great satire, there are hard truths lurking just below the surface. Tony Blair, who worked with four different cabinet secretaries during his decade in power, described the Sir Humphrey character as, quote, the closest parody could get to fact. And he should know. I think the reason why it has such long duration, why it resonates for so many people, is the tools and the tricks that Sir Humphrey uses to try and get his way are a very good way of poking fun at the sort of things that civil servants might do. So whether that's the sort of very carefully construed way in which he briefs the Prime Minister in order to try and steer him to what he thinks is the most sensible course of action, whether it's the way he uses very complex government processes to try and get the thing to happen in the right way. Well, I suppose we could form an interdepartmental committee to examine the feasibility of monitoring a proposal for admitting patients at an earlier date. (laughs) How long would that take to report? Oh, not long. (laughs) How long? Oh, about uh, 18 months. (laughs) They're a caricature, but they're also somewhat based in reality because Whitehall is a very complex system and understanding how all of the sort of informal processes work as well as the very complicated formal processes and sort of knowing how to navigate that really well is a key attribute for any cabinet secretary. The latest real-life version of Sir Humphrey, Simon Case, completes his first six months as cabinet secretary next week. He's perhaps the second most important man in the country. And yet how many of us really know what he actually gets up to all day? Is the Cabinet Secretary the one running the show? Or is he just taking orders from the boss? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard. And this week on Westminster Insider, we take a look at the most powerful job in Whitehall. 
and try to figure out if Sir Humphrey really does always come out on top. Pop quiz. In the 105 years since the job was first created, only 12 people had ever held the post of Cabinet Secretary prior to Simon Case's appointment last autumn. So let's guess. How many of the 12 were men? Yep, it's 12 out of 12. And how many were white men? Naturally, it's 12 out of 12. And how many were or later became Knights of the Realm? 12 out of 12. Huh. 8 out of 12 went to private school, 9 out of 12 were from the south of England, 11 out of 12 studied at Oxbridge, and 12 out of 12 were elevated to the House of Lords afterwards. And guess what? The 13th Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, is a white, male, privately educated, Oxbridge graduate from the south of England. He's not been knighted as yet, but no doubt it's in the post, along with the peerage when he's ready for it. For all that, Simon Case was not the obvious choice. He was just 41 years old when appointed last year, making him the youngest cabinet secretary since the guy who invented the job back in 1916, the wonderfully named Maurice Hankey. Now normally being appointed cabinet secretary would cap off a glistening civil service career, the crowning achievement after decades of working for successive governments. You'd generally be in your 50s with plenty of experience of running big Whitehall departments. By comparison, Case is a relative whippersnapper who's never really run anything at all. But that's not to say he's not highly rated. And his CV reads like a grand tour of the great institutions of the British establishment. Senior official with the intelligence agencies, private secretary to two prime ministers, a key role in Brussels during the Brexit talks, Prince William's closest aide at Kensington Palace. You'd hardly call him an outsider. I think Simon, to some extent, he seems cut from the same mould. Catherine Haddon again. You know, he's sort of steeped in that kind of law of being a cabinet secretary and being at the centre of governments, working closely with prime ministers, all of that side of the job and all the constitutional stuff. You know, he he's well versed in a lot of that. I think where he's different, which is quite striking, is one is that he doesn't have a background in the Treasury. So that's kind of a notable change. I think the big change, though, is the fact that he doesn't have the kind of management experience of running a large organisation. You know, permanent secretaries have at least run a department and in some cases their departments oversee huge public services. And I think that's probably the area where he'll find the biggest challenge. Simon Case made his first, and so far only, public appearance last October, answering questions before a select committee of MPs. The tape shows a young-looking, bespectacled man with a neatly trimmed beard and perfect tailoring. Like every cabinet secretary, he was carefully spoken and intensely calm, clearly confident in his ability to do the job. MPs who raised his relative lack of experience were given short shrift. We all have gaps in our experience and it's why right from the outset I have approached the job as... Um, as sort of leading through a team with Alex and other permanent secretaries. I think, you know, we all make up for each other's strengths and weaknesses and experience. Later on, Case is asked to list his priorities in the new job. Just listen to this. Obviously managing the response to Covid, I think everybody working in public life shares that, that priority. Second, managing the economic consequences and recovery from Covid. Third, Transition out of the, the EU. Fourth, working with ministers to maintain the integrity of our union. 
Fifth, ensuring the government delivers on its manifesto commitments. Now, don't let the deadpan delivery fool you. He's just listed battling a deadly pandemic, dealing with the biggest economic crisis in decades, smoothing Britain's departure from Europe, trying to save the United Kingdom from disintegration. Oh, and actually delivering all those promises the Tories made at the general election. You thought you were having a busy time at work. But this is the job. Dealing with national emergencies is one part of what these guys do. I spoke to Richard Wilson, who was Cabinet Secretary under Tony Blair during crises including the 9-11 terror attacks, the war on the Taliban and the foot-and-mouth outbreak of 2001, about whether the enormity of what you're dealing with ever gets to you. Yes, you try to keep that aside. You learn to can... Because you've had a lot of experience over the years. My first crisis was Leela Khaled and the hijackings in 1970 when I was its private secretary to the Minister for Civil Aviation. And we were faced with a BOAC plane in the desert with hijackers in the aisles with the grenades with the pins pulled out. And we had to try and work out what to do with that. But all my career, I've been in situations where you don't look down. You mustn't look down. Wilson spoke to me via Zoom from a grand wood-panelled study at his home in Cambridge. He's in his late 70s now a crossbench member of the House of Lords. It's been almost 20 years since he left government, having retired as Blair's Cabinet Secretary in 2002. But his recollections of the momentous events he saw up close remain as sparkling to listen to as any you will hear. I asked him about the role he played on September the 11th, 2001, a day which was supposed to be notable only for a speech the Prime Minister was due to give to trade union leaders in Brighton. The morning of 9-11 was normal, perfectly normal. And I went out for lunch with someone doing business. And when I got back into the car, my driver, Gary, said to me, someone's driven a plane into the world, one of the World Trade Center towers. And I said, oh, my goodness. He turned on the radio. The second plane went into the tower. And the phone went in the car. uh, And it was Jeremy Haywood saying, planes have been driven into the World Trade Center. Jeremy Hayward, of course, would go on to become Cabinet Secretary himself in the 2010s, but at the time was Tony Blair's principal private secretary, or his Bernard, if we're still talking yes minister. We'd heard that the White House may evacuate. Should we evacuate number 10? What do we do? And I said, "Um, where would you evacuate to? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, probably there's quite a good rule not to evacuate until you know where you're going to. I had an image of all the special advisors lining Whitehall with their laptops, waiting to be told where to go. That wouldn't be a good picture. So I said, let's have a meeting of Cobra. And I got back and we got hold of Mr. Blair, who was about to go on the platform at the Trade Union Congress. And we told him what was going on. His reaction was really interesting. He moved immediately, and I was impressed, to the big picture. Who did it and how is Bush going to react? And how do we influence Bush so that he doesn't do anything stupid? I was completely at the other end of the spectrum, worrying about whether London was about to have similar incidents. And we called the meeting of COBRA at 4.30. COBRA, as you probably know, stands for Cabinet Office Briefing Room A. And it's where the Civil Contingencies Committee of senior ministers and security officials meet to handle matters of national emergencies. Jack, if ever you find yourself in a crisis in government and in charge of dealing with it, always say, we'll have a meeting of COBRA at 4.30. It works <laughs> because the first reaction in any crisis, and I've dealt with a lot of them, is shock. 
People are in shock. And if you're not careful, they go into chaos. They run around like headless chickens and you've got a muddle on your hands. So what you want before you do anything is you say, we have a meeting of COBRA. No one talks to the press except for Alistair Campbell. We'll put out a statement. The prime minister's taking charge. And then you think, what the hell do we do? Such are the extraordinary moments in which only a cabinet secretary can find themselves. Gloriously, Wilson told me that all the surviving cabinet secretaries, now elderly members of the House of Lords, sometimes go drinking together, swapping anecdotes and sharing their unique worldview. I'm not sure what the collective noun is for a group of cabinet secretaries. A secrecy, maybe? An establishment of cabinet secretaries? A cover-up? But it must make for some terrific barroom chat. We're all independent-minded, but we all know each other. Recently, a number of us went into the bar in the House of Lords just to have a drink, coincidentally with we there, which is a normal thing to do. But I could see everyone in the room looking and thinking, my gosh, the cabinet secretaries are talking. What is going on? What are they up to? And we don't operate as a group like that at all. We're too individualistic. But we do tend to have a same viewpoint of the world because we've gone through the same experiences. Indeed they do, and famously so. But is that always healthy? Coming up, we'll be hearing more tales from the other ex-cabinet secretaries and trying to figure out how important these guys really are in deciding the direction of the country. Stay with us. In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium policy intelligence service, Politico Pro, is designed for public affairs professionals. Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. From financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more, Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? Westminster Insider listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.co.uk with the code Westminster. Again, that's pro at politico.co.uk. So apologies if this is a really obvious point, but the Cabinet Secretary's most basic function is, indeed, to be Secretary to the Cabinet. It's an admin role, but a massively important one. Cabinet, of course, rather than the Prime Minister, being the government's actual decision-making body. And the Cabinet Secretary, aided by a small team, preps the agenda, briefs attending ministers, writes up the minutes and circulates the decisions. And he sits beside the Prime Minister throughout each meeting, offering advice and guidance as he sees fit. He is, quite literally, the PM's right-hand man. Here's the late Robert Armstrong, Cabinet Secretary to Margaret Thatcher through most of the 1980s, telling an audience at the Institute for Government about his first ever cabinet meeting. I remember when I became cabinet secretary, somebody said, where does Robert sit? Does he sit behind the prime minister, behind Margaret Thatcher? No, they said, he sits at the table on Margaret Thatcher's right. God, they said, we didn't know there was such a place. (laughs) This clip is actually from a really lovely event. In 2016, to mark the 100th anniversary of the post being established, the Institute for Government somehow managed to get all six living cabinet secretaries together, in a room, at the same time, to reminisce about life at the top of government. For British political nerds, it was manna from heaven. 
Sadly, both Robert Armstrong, whose voice you just heard, and the chairman that day, Jeremy Haywood, who was cabinet secretary at the time, have both since died, adding an air of poignancy now to an already unique event. The sheer experience in the room that day, the collective memory covering every major political event this country has seen in the past 50 years, has probably never been surpassed. There's this brilliant section where Jeremy Haywood asks each of them to recall their favourite cabinet meeting. What's great about it is how these guys can even make the taking of minutes sound entertaining. Robert Armstrong tells a cracker about the infamous morning in 1986 when the Defence Secretary, Michael Heseltine, stormed out of Cabinet over a long-running dispute with Margaret Thatcher about the future of Britain's last helicopter company, Westland. Thatcher had decided that any further statements on the topic now had to be cleared by the Cabinet Office. It did not sit well with Heser. Michael Heseltine pulled his papers together on the table and said, in that case, Prime Minister, I can no longer remain in this Cabinet and walked out. And none of us knew whether he was saying he couldn't stay in this meeting of the cabinet (laughs) or whether the thing was more drastic than that. And we were there for about two minutes and then somebody came in from outside and said, Michael Hiltine is on the doorstep of number 10 saying he's resigned. And um, we had uh, got to, I think, to item two in the cabinet business. (laughs) And there were three other items to come. So the cabinet was adjourned for half an hour. Some of us spoke to Sandringham and obtained the Queen's approval for the appointment of George Younger to be Secretary of State for Defence. He was Secretary of State for Scotland. And we sat down again for half an hour later with a new Secretary of State for Defence. So the front page of the cabinet minutes for this meeting is quite unique. It says the Right Honourable Michael Heseltine, Secretary of State for Defence, items one and two. (laughs) The Right Honourable George Younger, Secretary of State for Scotland, items one and two. Secretary of State for Defence, items three to five. Armstrong's successor as Cabinet Secretary, Robin Butler, who took over in 1987, chooses Thatcher's last ever Cabinet meeting as the most memorable for him. It wasn't absolutely clear that she was going to resign, but the writing was very obviously on the wall, and um, I asked myself how we were going to manage this at Cabinet next day. And I sat at the principal private secretary's desk in uh, number 10 with the drafting team and Margaret Thatcher inside. And um, I thought, if she announces she's going to resign, somebody's going to have to say something. And uh, I thought, who should that be? And it obviously oughtn't to be one of the people who'd be contenders for the succession, because they'd elbow each other, they'd all want to do it. And so I thought, James Mackay is the ideal person. And I drafted something for him to say and discussed it with him during that evening and he had it all ready for uh, the next morning. And then things took their course at the Cabinet. She made her statement. James Mackay then came in and uh, said something. And it was the only time that I knowingly falsified the Cabinet minutes because she said something which was pretty well uncoded. I'm going but please don't appoint Michael Heseltine my successor. (laughs) And I translated that into, I'm going, but I rely on my colleagues to carry on the mission to which we have been (laughs) So it's there to be seen somewhere. Aside from being a great story, 
What's interesting about this is how Butler, of his own accord, approaches a cabinet minister behind Thatcher's back and discusses how they will respond if she resigns. This is not disloyalty to his boss or subterfuge. The cabinet secretary is there to support the whole cabinet, not just the PM, and to ensure it operates smoothly. His loyalty is to the executive as a whole. This need to make cabinet an effective, smooth-running body was the whole reason the post of cabinet secretary was invented back in 1916. Before that, the top of government was, by all accounts, a bit of a mess. 19th and early 20th century cabinet meetings would be long and rambling, with no clear outcomes from what was discussed. Catherine Haddon. Minutes weren't taken, agendas were a bit haphazard, people would come out of the meetings with different views about what would happen, you know, they might go off to their departments and order different things, and it was very hard to keep sort of an eye on that. This ramshackle model of governance became a critical problem during the First World War. Britain needed decisive leadership, and found it in the form of the War Secretary, David Lloyd George. Having taken over as PM in 1916, he formed a small but powerful new war cabinet, complete with its own team of officials, and with his military aide, Captain Maurice Hankey, as its secretary. For the first time, a senior civil servant would watch, listen and take notes of cabinet discussions, and then draw up conclusions and action plans which were issued to government departments. It sounds simple now, but this was nothing short of a revolution in Whitehall. For the first time, the centre had a real grip of government, and it was Maurice Hankey's pen handing out the orders. One official noted Hankey's, quote, uncanny instinct for extracting a decision out of a cabinet discussion, however inconclusive it might have been. On one occasion, the Chancellor, Bonner Law, was asked on his way out of cabinet whether a particular decision had been agreed. I really couldn't tell, he replied. You'll have to wait for Hankey's minute. Such is the power of the cabinet secretary. Hankey stayed in the job for more than 20 years. The modern-day job of Cabinet Secretary, of course, goes way beyond sitting through Cabinet meetings and writing up what happened. Helpfully, in a speech in 2015, Jeremy Haywood set out what he said were the eight core functions of his role. But I'm going to start with number one, which is probably the irreducible minimum task of being Cabinet Secretary, which is to be the Secretary to the Cabinet. Second was advising uh, the Prime Minister role, on policy and governance. Um, it's basically whatever is important, whatever is in the Prime Minister's mind, whatever is number 10's concern, where I think a senior civil service voice is needed. Thirdly, he oversees propriety and ethics within government, which means handling complaints against ministers, civil service PR disputes, leak inquiries and all the rest. But there's a lot of casework under this heading. Quite you can say that again. Fourth, he says, is the actual business of government, driving through manifesto commitments, ensuring major projects are actually carried out. Fifth, he is the head of the civil service, an army of workers numbering close to half a million people. For many people, this would be one of the biggest things they did. It's number five on my list. Sixth, he's in charge of the recruitment and management of the 20-odd permanent secretaries who run the Whitehall Department. Seventh, Haywood says, is encouraging innovation and reform within the civil service. Good luck with that. And eighth, is representing the civil service externally, being the public face of Whitehall in speeches, at select committees, and even on social media. A number of my journalist friends have told me it's the most boring Twitter feed in Britain, which I take as a badge of honour. Uh, different aspects of the job have come and gone over the years. The Cabinet Secretary hasn't always been head of the civil service, for example, and has at different points been the PM's chief advisor on national security too. Jeremy Haywood's widow, Suzanne, has published a book about her husband's glittering civil service career. She says the secret to juggling so much is to let your best officials get on with it, but then to get personally involved when it really matters. 
Somebody described him to me as being a bit like the conductor of an orchestra rather than the captain of a football team, in that he was very, very happy to let others do things in their own part of the orchestra. And then when things became critical, he was also very good at diving in and going right down to the detail himself. But because he managed it in that sort of way, he could manage a huge span of different things. This need to dive in whenever something becomes a major problem means cabinet secretaries can get extraordinarily hands-on at times. Suzanne Hayward tells how her husband personally led the inquiry into allegations that Andrew Mitchell, then the chief whip, had called a police officer a pleb during an altercation at the Downing Street gates in 2012. He kind of sat going through the tapes in Downing Street, trying to work out, you know, whether or not Andrew Mitchell had said the word pleb or not. An impossible thing to judge, actually, frankly. But, you know, what's quite extraordinary is you have somebody who one moment is dealing with quite big issues of policy or implementation, and the next moment is crouched over a video screen trying to work out who said what to whom. But that's part of the job. And you can't really delegate that because you are talking about somebody's career. You've got to get it right or as right as you possibly can. They even go down to the gates and act it out, don't they? They do, they do. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Jeremy sat watching the screen and sent two of his colleagues out to reenact what happened, to try and work out who would have been able to hear what when it actually happened. did make me laugh, I have to say. It's fair to say these inquiries do not always go well. Hayward was heavily criticised by MPs for failing to get to the bottom of the Plebgate affair. Even worse was his predecessor Robin Butler's notorious 1994 inquiry into Jonathan Aitken's dealings with Arab arms brokers. Butler cleared the Defence Minister of all charges. Aitken was later found to have lied and lied and lied and ended up in prison. Still... For all the mishaps, we can see the Cabinet Secretary as a troubleshooter, trying to fix multiple issues as they pop up across Whitehall. And as Gus O'Donnell, Cabinet Secretary under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown explains, it's only the biggest problems which make it right to the top. I don't think you can ever quite comprehend the sheer breadth of the job, because everything matters in one way or another. You know, it could be something to do with crime figures one day, it could be some personal scandal of a politician another day. No easy questions ever come up to the Cabinet Secretary. Someone else has dealt with them all along the way. So the only ones that really come to your desk that you really have to spend your time on are the ones where they're they're very hard. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. You know, and people have very strong and different views. And you're trying to help Prime Minister's Cabinet get to a view when there are great differences amongst them. When they're all united, it's completely straightforward. Catherine Haddon says this ability to manage fractious relationships, soothing the different egos around the cabinet table, is absolutely key to the role. They can be a little bit of a a sort of referee, trying to make sure that everyone around the cabinet table is, you know, not quite singing on the same hymn sheet, but at the same time not maybe allowing things to sort of escalate into open warfare. They can be also almost a marriage counsellor, trying to bring together difficult problems that are going on in government, maybe difficult relationships, because there's a lot of that that they have to do as well. Robert Armstrong captures all this eloquently, describing the Cabinet Secretary as the chief engineer of the ship of state, making sure the machinery works, making sure that the Prime Minister and the Cabinet pull the levers and the government responds. But is there more to it than that? At what point does making sure the machinery works involve giving it a firm shove in a certain direction? 
When do a cabinet secretary's personal views come into play? Jeremy Haywood, after all, acted as David Cameron's chief policy advisor and was certainly accused in the press of pushing his own agenda from time to time. Here's his widow, Suzanne, again. Some people have the view that the civil service is a very kind of passive machine that sits there, waits for a minister to come along and tell them what to do, and then everybody rushes off and does it. And some people think that the civil service is incredibly Machiavellian, you know, somehow kind of puppet masters, or I guess, uh, yes, kind of taking something out of yes minister, which I fear has done the civil service a great disservice in a way, although I have to add it was one of Jeremy's favourite programmes as well. But actually, the reality is the civil service is something in between. So civil servants are very, very conscious of what ministers are trying to achieve so the political guardrails if you like of what a policy needs to do but within those guardrails the civil service is very active certainly should be very active in terms of creating policies that meet ministers ambitions and then it's up to ministers to make a decision on whether or not they want to put that policy into action still there are plenty of people who think the civil service is sometimes a little more active than it should be Who can forget the fury directed at Whitehall by certain Leave-supporting MPs and campaigners during the Brexit talks? The charge was levelled that almost every senior civil servant from the Cabinet Secretary down was opposed to the whole Brexit project and intent on maintaining close ties with Europe, whatever the politicians and the public might want. You finish up with a civil service-led Remainers Brexit that is, I think, the worst deal in history. Whatever your view on that... It's pretty clear there's always been an inherent small-c conservatism to the role. And it goes beyond the formation of policy, the smooth running of government, the management of the civil service, to something grander, something more intangible. There's a hint of it in Richard Wilson's reaction to 9-11 and that meeting of the emergency Cobra committee he convened as Tony Blair rushed back from Brighton. Here he is again, recalling how he leapt into action in the PM's absence. It was terrifying. I was seriously alarmed. We had to find out where the Queen was, make sure she was safe and members of the royal family. We had to find, make sure Parliament was all right, because I had images of a plane going to Big Ben and make sure that Parliament was evacuated. There was a real worry about the city of London airport, because it was an obvious place to take off if you wanted to go into a tall building. And we took the decision to um, close it down. We sorted out the legal position later. I remember Blair, when we spoke to Blair, saying to him, Prime Minister, I have closed down the City of London Airport. I hope that's all right. And he said, sure, sure. So I got the cover I needed. So at this moment of maximum peril for the nation, with the Twin Towers tumbling in New York and the Pentagon under attack, in the Prime Minister's brief absence, it is the Cabinet Secretary who takes command. Nobody asks him to. It just happens, unspoken. It's the Cabinet Secretary making calls to senior military officials, drawing up contingency plans, This is more than just an admin or an advisory role, more than oiling the good ship of state. Britain is under threat, and with Blair out of town, it is Richard Wilson's hands upon the tiller. In the absence of anyone, you know, I'm the most senior person around. I've got the access to the intelligence agencies, I've got the access to departments, I've got the access to COBRA, and I think that was my role, yes. A number of occasions in my career, I had to take control of. I mean, Mr. Blair was happy with me doing what I did. And when I spoke to him on the phone, I told him briefly what I've been telling you. And he said, yes, yes, go ahead. Of course, you must do it. And I remembered all these phone calls while I watched in real time the towers crumbling. It was horrible. Is there a sort of a constitutional role 
aspect of the job that goes even deeper than your role as you know a senior advisor as the head of the civil service where really when the state is at risk when britain is at risk i mean even prime ministers come and go but cabinet secretary is always there you're there in support you're always there in support in any position in the civil service including cabinet secretary you always have to remember you are not elected it's the ministers who are elected and you have to provide them with the best service you can and if that service includes masterminding some management of a contingency so be it you have to do it this was not a one off robert armstrong recalls another terrorist attack 17 years earlier when he was cabinet secretary this was the ira bomb attack on the conservative party conference in brighton in 1984 five people were killed 31 injured and the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, narrowly escaped with her life. Armstrong was at home in London when the bomb went off at the Grand Brighton Hotel shortly before 3am. Here he is discussing the episode in an interview for the Mile End Institute. I must have been awake and heard about it, and I didn't know whether the Prime Minister was still alive. And I went through what I would have to do if she was dead, and what would have to be done to find a successor, and the process by which one would have to have an interim prime minister until the process of election took place, and who I would have to talk to and who I would have to recommend and all that, and um, be ready to hold it together, as it were. Thank goodness it wasn't needed. Be ready to hold it together. Now I feel like we're getting somewhere. I'd argue that that, above all else, is what the Cabinet Secretary is really there to do. Prime Ministers can be swept away by elections or resignations or even death, but the Cabinet Secretary must be there and ready to hold it together. In a sense, they are the British state, a living and breathing embodiment of the establishment, unencumbered by the to's and fro's of parliamentary democracy. You see it in their private conversations with the other members of the so-called Golden Triangle, the private secretaries to the Queen and the Prime Minister. Mysterious meetings where great issues of state are hammered out by unelected officials behind closed doors. You see it too when state secrets are under threat. When David Cameron was trying to stop The Guardian from publishing the Snowden leaks, revealing his government's online spying techniques, it was Jeremy Haywood who was dispatched to order the newspaper to destroy the hard drives. When Margaret Thatcher was battling to prevent the publication in Australia of Spycatcher, a book revealing MI5 secrets, It was Robert Armstrong who travelled down under to testify in the Aussie courts. This, by the way, proved to be one of the most disastrous moments any cabinet secretary has endured. Armstrong facing public ridicule after telling the court he hadn't lied, but had in fact been economical with the truth. So Humphrey himself would have been proud. This ultra-establishment role becomes most evident at election time, when the cabinet secretary's loyalty to his current boss, the Prime Minister, visibly starts to blur. He holds meetings with opposition leaders to discuss their manifestos so that Whitehall's ready to facilitate a swift transition of power. This can be pretty disconcerting for the Prime Minister, who may suddenly find themselves looking at their right-hand man in a whole new light. Here's Robin Butler, who served under three different Prime Ministers from Margaret Thatcher to Tony Blair. You support the Prime Minister, you admire the Prime Minister, you do your very best for the Prime Minister, your close, almost intimate relationship develops. And then... A week before a general election, you look at each other and the Prime Minister suddenly realises that you, who he's trusted and liked and is going to be working for his or her 
chief political opponent in a week's time. That's quite a moment, actually, and, uh, but it's something that you've got to get used to. These shifting allegiances were never plainer than in 2010, when the voters delivered a hung parliament. The cabinet secretary at the time, Gus O'Donnell, known in Whitehall by the wonderful acronym GOD, found himself facilitating coalition talks not only for his boss, Gordon Brown, but also for opposition leaders David Cameron and Nick Clegg. Those present say O'Donnell told the opposition parties in no uncertain terms that the financial markets were in a perilous state and that a quick resolution was needed. And sure enough, the Conservative Lib Dem coalition was swiftly formed. O'Donnell insists he was just doing his job, but Gordon Brown was seething. Catherine Haddon again. It's difficult to say whether he overstepped the mark because it's partly about the way the UK works. We're not used to coalitions. In many other countries where coalitions happen all the time, none of this would be controversial. They would have processes in place for which parties get to negotiate when. You know, we have a very informal system when that happens. I think, though, the criticism is valid when it's about did the civil service just want a nice sort of clean government in place? And there is a tendency towards that. And actually, they do like a secure majority government. And so that perhaps in 2010, you know, there was probably a bit of a bias towards wanting coalition rather than a a messy minority at that time. So does Sir Humphrey always win? Well, not always, or not individually at any rate. The Cabinet Secretary's personal fate still lies in the hands of his boss, and those who clash with their Prime Ministers do not tend to last very long. Prior to Tony Blair's arrival in office, the average length of service for a Cabinet Secretary was 11 and a half years. But Blair, who hated what he called the traditionalist tendencies of the civil service, got through four of them in a decade. More recently, you'll recall Mark Sedwell was forced out by Boris Johnson after less than two years in the post. So there can be no doubt about who's actually boss in Downing Street these days. But it's instructive to look at who followed each of these guys. Tony Blair had been trying to reform the way the Whitehall machine worked, yet each new cabinet secretary he brought in was a product of that very machine. Every one of them a career civil servant who'd run Whitehall departments for years. And as Richard Wilson told us earlier, these sorts of people do tend to have the same viewpoint on the world. More recently we had Dominic Cummings vowing to shake the Whitehall establishment to its core. Yet, after the ousting of Mark Sedwell, it was Simon Case, the permanent secretary in number 10, who was promoted to the top job. One of Cummings' allies told me recently that there was never any suggestion of bringing in a real outsider. You need someone who knows how to pull the levers which make government work. Here's Catherine Haddon. It's very rare at those high-level posts that people come straight in from business because... I mean, Whitehall is so difficult to understand. Outsiders coming in, you know, they talk about how difficult it is to understand the processes, the way it works, the balance of power that we've been talking about, the nuances that we've been talking about. These are all quite impenetrable for outsiders, and yet they're crucial to understand how to navigate the system. And so Sir Humphrey's face changes, but the Whitehall machine emerges more or less unscathed, whoever the voters have picked as their Prime Minister. As Gordon Brown wrote in a private note for David Cameron as he departed Downing Street for the last time in 2010, I know the country is in good hands, David. Jeremy Haywood is running it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you normally get your podcast. Many thanks to the Institute for Government and the Mile End Institute for their help this week. This episode was produced by Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions 
And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my managing editor is James Randerson. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.